Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. Live from Tulsa in my living room. Still. Still. Yep. Still here, everybody. Um, So, last time on The Dirt Podcast. Dun, dun. Um, So, did you know that this was going to be a three-part series? (laughs) We didn't. (laughs) But we're continuing, we're finishing... Our uh, now three-part installment talking about sci-fi, speculative fiction, and how anthropology and archaeology feed into and are informed by those things. So last time we we had story time. Yeah. We talked about Urashima Taro uh, and the Ramayana and the things that are not UFOs, the yeah. flying chariots, you and we so oh kitty. My cat is also still here. We talked about Lucian, my boy Lucian of Samosata. Ah, and the, what a treat. And the, the salad wings, <laughs> which is my f- new favorite animal. Um, and this week, Amber, what are we doing this week? Um, this week, we are going to talk about um, anthropology, the, like the anthropology within uh, science fiction worlds. Okay, so, so I've got for you... Two of the, I think, most exceptional science fiction authors. In Giants the of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're going to be looking at how um, anthropology informs their work, how their work might be able to inform anthropology. And, and then we're just going to um, devolve into giggles. Oh, no. Um, with a- Everyone's favorite. <laughs> Uh, uh, caveat auditor giggles C- yeah. cw giggles um yeah then we're going to talk about some appearances of anthropologists in uh science fiction properties at the end to bring us on home cool i'd like everyone to know that at this moment there's an ant on my laptop ant anthropology CW, here come the giggles. <laughs> um, and so now that we've explored some, um, some many actually, examples of science fiction and speculative fiction coming through in the archaeological or historical record, um, let's invert the question and, uh, and look for some examples of anthropology coming through in the science fiction record. What? Yeah. So um, I want to talk about two writers who, in my view, transcend the genre of speculative fiction and honestly transcend fiction altogether. The first is Ursula K. Le Guin. Yes. uh, Whose name I've been screaming at Anna since Alan emailed us. And to which I've been responding like... I know. (laughs) I read read it one. 
Yeah, so we'll see if you read any of the ones that we'll talk about here. Probably not. Um, what did you read? I read Wizard of Earth, Earthsea. Okay. Yeah, I read the Earthsea. You read the Earthsea cycle? cycle but like I was in fourth grade or so. Yeah. So like I need to read. It's the right it. time to read it. No, I don't. I don't think I got enough out of oh, it. Oh, you'll get more out of it now. Yeah. I, I want to revisit it. I got it on my shelf. That does not mean several anything. states away. Yep. Um, but regardless, so, um, she's sort of the quintessential anthropologist, science fiction writer. Um, uh, and so, which is easy to tell because as background, her mother, Theodora Krober was an anthropologist, uh, who did graduate work in anthropology and wrote, um, uh, like uh, single authored and co-authored several articles on um, cultural anthropology and the uh, tribes of California, the indigenous tribes of California, um, and who, uh, despite that work, and then later after her husband's retirement, started writing again, and and like after her kids were grown up, um, she empty nested. She, she empty nested and went back to writing at, at, towards the end of her life. Um, and all of those things are generally overlooked for the fact that the person that she married was, was bad, was Alfred Kroeber. So Theodora, Theodora Kroeber was Alfred Kroeber's second wife. Um, so I think Anna edited this out of the episode with Sam Redman, but I said that, um, in my view, the only good thing that Alfred Kroeber has ever done was provide half the genetic material to create Ursula K. Le Guin. I don't think I cut um, that part out. Oh, great. I stand by it. Um, but um, also, like Sam does a very good job of humanizing Kroeber in the book. Yeah, in the book. In, in and I, oh, Are you mad like, at Sam for, <laughs> for like humanizing a man who did bad, bad things? Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but, um, take note, Dr. Samuel Redman, just, um, uh, but Alfred Krober, who came up in our conversation with Sam Redman, um, and, and comes up in the book is, is a, is the, um, is one of the biggest names in yeah, for anthropology sure. in the 20th century. Um, and so clearly some of that stuff was being thrown around in her home like when she was growing up, because as, as an adult, Ursula K. Le Guin became a prolific and celebrated, um, author of speculative fiction. So she wrote, uh, she wrote as, as we just mentioned, um, the Earthsea cycle, uh, which is a fantasy series. She wrote, um, several, she wrote lots of essays, um, and she also wrote many short stories and novels. So you may have read, um, the short story, The Ones Who Walk from walk Away from Omelas. Do you remember this story, Anna? No, I've, I've not read any of her wow, short stories, okay. I think. So it's, it's like frequently assigned in like literature classes. Um, but I don't know. I I, don't, you, okay, that's no. fine. It's fine. I read it at gifted camp, so. Let's <laughs> I mean, we went to different we, gifted we went camps. To different gifted camps. Um, but there are two, there are two pieces of her work that I want to talk about, uh, uh, for for the purposes of speculative anthropology and also because one of them is one of my favorite books. Um, and the first is um, The Left Hand of Darkness. You've not read this? I have not. Okay. So for Anna and the listeners, um, it is um, it is largely an exploration of a, of a, a planet and a society. Uh, the planet is called Gethin. And um, the... The inhabitants of of Gethin 
are a species um, of ambisexual people. It means that they are really into me specifically. And ambisexual. Um, so, so they are ambisexual in meaning that they are out of most of the year, um, like they are completely androgynous um, and they have no gender. Uh, but during a specific period of time uh, called uh, uh, calmer, I think um, they, they I, I think it's calmer. They um, they develop sexually dimorphic um, secondary sex characteristics. Well, they, they, yeah, they and like they basically like get genitals, and then they that that's the period during which they like will Pro- copulate yeah. and, and, and procreate. Sure. Um, but the rest of the time, like, their, their there is no gender. is without gender. And, and so they're still, their society is still without gender, but it, it gets, but it has sex. Oh. Like, uh, at specific points of time. Like, it's like a biological And sex and function. gender are differentiated. Imagine. And, and so that, and like, there is... It's like a slight bummer that it's kind of like Gethin is still like super hetero, even though they like, but whatever. It's <laughs> I'm willing to sure forgive that for something that it is a um, it is one of the like classic representation, like examples of androgyny mm. in literature. And I wonder if it's one of probably one of many reasons why in like science fiction like like visually visual science fiction like tv vi- movies aliens are often quite androgynous i don't know that it's because of her no mm-hmm. uh, because like for for her like the discussion is like much more um it's it's an it's an exploration of their society but also but i, I yeah maybe like for the insofar as this is something post gender because she wanted to explore a, she wanted to explore a society sort of setting aside mm. gender dynamics because she this was a this was a like feminist act like she wanted to like she because the the um and and something that is going to come up as we continue talking about her um you learn about the inhabitants of Gethin through the perspective of somebody who visits and ends up being and like an uh, like an accidental participant observer, and somebody who knows about the place and like knows that this is their deal, and then shows up and is still like, wait, wait, actually, and like because there's a difference between reading about something and experiencing it, like from the perspective of doing ethnography, doing yes. anthropology, or just being a person, like like sort of a lived experience versus a learned experience. Um, and so an, the, uh, another example of this coming through in her work is The Dispossessed, which is one of my favorite books. Um, and so the, the protagonist of The Dispossessed is a physicist named Shevek who comes from the plant, the, well, it's a moon, so comes from Anares. And Anares is the uh, sort of breakaway colony on the moon of the planet Urus. Um, and so it's a, a like an anarcho syndicalist place. So it's like a a very um, like deliberate, like intentional, uh, like anarchist community, like a flat society that left 
um, Urus a couple hundred years before the, the, the book. The book. And so what happens in The Dispossessed is Shevek is going to Urus to, um, to, to like, to do physics. Like he, he is like the most brilliant physicist like on the colony he's doing a, an and exchange. So basically, yeah, he's a visiting scholar. Yeah. And so he goes and he observes this place that is like deeply patriarchal and very hierarchical. And so you are, you are learning about his, like his world and like his life and his society through his eyes. And then you're going to this place that is actually like, um, quite familiar to most readers of, of like Le Guin's book. Um, but it is, but it's seen through his eyes. Um, and so that's cool. Cause it's like a way to get at like, what would someone else think? Exactly. And so this is like, she does this through the use of two, like two terms, like two, sort of two bits of jargon, one that we've discussed before and the other I will talk about here. Um, and that is thick description, um, which, which we have, which I'll, I'll give, I'll tell you again. Um, and also historicity. Um, and so, uh, there's a really great article, um, by Daniel Davison, uh, Vecchione and Sean Seeger called Ursula Le Guin's speculative anthropology, thick description, historicity, and science fiction. Hmm. Uh, so to understand what's happening here and to see like that she is kind of, doing a form of anthropology like she's putting forward a theory in like through her work um so thick description um that's like going that is is an ethnographic approach of going beyond uh like just like describing events or a, a ritual or something as a catalog of actions instead embedding the described actions in the context of emotion significance to the participant um like the the observed participant not and and also the observer um and context so like really like deep thick context for what's happening there it's very immersive criticism of thick description um, is that it lacks historicity. And so historicity is, um, is this, uh, sort of the, the belief, the position, and then the sort of involved sort of methods, uh, for the, the, that state that in order to understand a social phenomenon or a cultural trait, one must learn about its history and the process of its development. So in the case of the Balinese cockfight, the very famous, um, is that Margaret Mead? No, no, no it's no. Clifford Geertz. Clifford Geertz. Sorry. I was thinking of this the, is yep. the Cl- Clifford Geertz work on like his, like, use of thick description. Right, right, right. I remember. So yeah, remember we, we talked about that, I think in ritual, I think yes, we talked we about did. this in I the remember. ritual episode. Um, the, so the Balinese cockfight is a great story of, uh, the like, really immersive story of the people who were immediately involved in this, the people that, and then like the cost broke up and all of this stuff. But it lacks the wider context. It lacks the context of, um, colonization it lacks the context of the relationship of the local people with the military or the law enforcement like it lacks the wider context that 
informs how they got to a point that there is a cockfight and it is illegal and that this and is what the they police do. Come and break it up. Yeah. And and yeah, and like all of all of those things. And so like in some ways and to some audiences, thick description is uh, limited and limiting. And historicity is it lacks all those other things. Like it's they would, but they're complementary. Are they not? Um, in the work of Ursula K. Le Guin, yes. Okay. Um, and so she uses, like, these two things are framed often as at odds. Either you give the wide context for things and, like, the explanation, the, like, scholarly, like, well, this is, this is why this is happening. Like, it's, it's a product of 400 years of colonization and exploitation and the, Who's like, systematic dismantling. Like, like, that, you could have that, like, which, like, is like I'm on board like taking like kind of a materialist approach of like these are the conditions yeah. that led to this like this is why they're doing it but that discounts the experience of the person who's there watching putting in the bets being like I do it because it's fun I do it because it's a point of pride I do it because of like those and so but if you focus on those things it's be like well they don't know why they do it like and so you need to have this 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 sort of from bo- from below and from above approach yeah and that's and, that's how you create like good fictional worlds is like they have they have history and they have context yeah and so what's happening in Le Guin's work is um, she both she creates the world and analyzes it yeah and uses it as like an exploration of the world that we inhabit um, and so you have examples of like you have example of of just like watching people interact and, and and watching people go through things. You have like words that like are made up and culturally embedded that you have, you grow to understand the meaning of. Like it's very immersive, but it also you have this character who can take a step back and like look at something in a museum and be like well like this happened 400 years ago and like this whole like and and have like a take of be like they they still do this even though x and you know like have that take but then have the the person that they're at the museum with be like well this is why we like that that having that that counterpoint um and so pulling from the davison vecchioni and seeger article they quote Le Guin herself in talking about why, because she could have written The Dispossessed as an, as an essay, because it is like a, a brilliant, like social, political, and like economic treatise. There's like a lot going on there. It's a really great thought experiment. It's, it's really good. Um, but she, instead she wrote it as a novel and she, she did that because it allowed the story to have, quoting Le Guin, the inherent self-contradictions of novelistic narrative that prevent simplistic single-theme interpretation. The novelistic thickness of description, Geertz's term, that resists reduction to abstracts and binaries. The embodiment of ethical dilemma in a drama of character that evades allegorical allegorical interpretation the presence of symbolic elements that are not fully accessible to rational thought so like that's that is like the best best case scenario for like employing those two things um so um they um i can quote here directly from davis and vecchioni and sean seeger um in saying, when they say 
In mapping the relationship between historicity, thick description, and science fiction in Le Guin, we have identified the core of her implicit theory of anthropology. One might nevertheless suggest, nevertheless wish to ask what, what value such speculative anthropology is supposed to have for anthropologists themselves. What exactly is to be gained by anthropological engagement with science fiction? After all, a speculative reconstruction of a traditional way of life on the part of an anthropologist in the field would just be bad anthropology, however imaginative it might be. An initial answer is that by illustrating how society could be organized differently, science fiction is a valuable resource for thinking critically about the present by denaturalizing practices we take for granted and imagining counterfactual lines of development. This is a promising approach to the genre for social scientists because many of the phenomena examined in science fiction, e.g. gender, class, are constitutive of real-world social relations and so are regarded as defining objects of study in several social scientific disciplines. A skeptic might respond, however, by arguing that instead of engaging with Le Guin's portrayal of, say, a non-binary culture, anthropologists could simply turn to the actual ethnographic record to find examples of such cultures, especially as the ethnographic record provides more secure empirical footing, end quote. Um, so they uh, sort of speak back to this, sort of the, this guy that they made up to argue with. They're very Socratic in what they're doing here. Um, skeptic, but, say. but they say that, quote, part of the answer to this lies in how, when comparing extant cultures, it is easy to think that a given culture developed as it did because of unique economic, social, or geographical factors that cannot arise in the ethnographer's own society. I was like, this would never happen here. So take, yeah, taking your own experience in your own society as the control group or as the baseline or as the sort of standard against which other societies might deviate. Yeah, but what if you're the weird ones? Right, or like Le Guin's speculative anthropology, it's they are like all, all weird. Yes, and and so, they're all weird. Um, and so it's also useful to think about, uh, to think about this in fiction because ethnography as a practice both describes its subject and constructs its subject because you aren't you aren't just like taking a piece of paper and putting up putting it up against a society and like rubbing a crayon against it to like get a rubbing of it like you are interpreting their actions and so even it like even with your very thick description with your like if you do very thick description you it's inherently biased because it is your observations and like who you who elected to who chose to talk to you consented to talk to you whether they lied to you or whether like they interpreted whether it was an intentional um, untruth that they told you, or if it perhaps is just a difference like of perception. Self reporting is, is Be tough. yeah, because like data -wise. these are people; they aren't just data points. Yeah, um, and so it's useful to think about this and think about that that interplay between description and construction. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. 
We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Um, and then, and then finally, um, the relationship that this has to the future, like, like describing these worlds as like the, by tackling present problems or tackling past problems or tackling, um, imagined problems, are we perhaps working towards building a better future? Um, and arguably, uh, Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that this is the opportunity, which, um, which, so in 2018, the Society for Culture and Anthropology released a series that did a series on speculative anthropologies. Um, and I include that in the show notes. Um, but it also included an essay by, uh, Priya Chandra Sekran about the work of the other person that I want to talk about with you at the end of this conversation. Um, Octavia E. Butler, do you know her work? I know of her work. Okay. Um, So, oh man, Octavia Butler is just like unreal. Uh, That's, that's unfair to her. She's so real. She's a real person. And just so incredibly talented. Um, Another like genius. And so specifically this essay deals with the parable of the sower, which came out in 1993 and the parable of the talents, which came out in 1998, um, which are a duology set in the 2020s in Southern California. Oh dear. Uh, well, yeah. In which, uh, the protagonist, uh, Lauren Oya Olamina establishes a new religion called earth seed, um, in response Seed, Earth Seed, not like, Earth Seed. Like we are Earth Seed. Yeah, um, I thought it was they, like a tip because of the they hat. they turn to. No, it wasn't. No, they turn to space. Ah. So they are sort of the Earth Seed that. Gotcha. Yeah, um, and and so this in response to a world that has been ravaged by climate change, wealth inequality, oligarchy, and racism, um, at, that has ultimately experienced an apocalypse, which is nicknamed by characters as the Pox. Wow. 
Um, so very, so if this sounds familiar, it's because it is, um, her books really picked up in popularity in 2020 and, um, because, and there was a, there was sort of a, a movement on Twitter. It was like oh, Octavia tried to tell us, um, Boy, and did she. she started writing these at the, at the turn of the Reagan to Bush administration. Um, how prescient. And so she lived, she lived in Pasadena and, um, um, and so, um, her book, uh, there's a slate essay that I'll include in the show notes that, uh, sort of speak to this phenomenon of her books really like kind of blown up in at the beginning of the pandemic, um, as a blueprint for living with uncertainty. Um, because it's not like, it's not like apocalypse fiction that is for sort of like doomsday prepping or the weird like fear porn of like zombie apocalypse stuff. Like it is, it is very much like a story of, um, devising strategies for survival and, and sort of continuing. Uh, she's amazing. And I, yeah. So the other reason why I wanted to talk about Octavia Butler is, uh, and bring her into this conversation is another aspect of her work that I only recently found out exists. Um, And I was genuinely moved by it and filled with regret that I did not know about it sooner. So uh, last month I went to, I was in San Francisco for work. That's why I wasn't here with y'all in your ears. Um, I was in, and so while I was there, I went to the Oakland Museum of California, which is a great museum, um, and the exhibition Mothership, uh, which was, uh, which was about Afrofuturism which I'm all about. So we talked a bit about Afrofuturism um, in episode 100, the archaeology of the future. The future. Um, and um, so they, this, this exhibition pulled from sort of the, um, some of the, the kind of like elders and forebears of, of um, Afrofuturisms and Afrofutures, including Octavia Butler, who, um, like gave all of her papers, I think are at the Huntington. Little did I know in media race here. Um, little did I know that um, her archive was not just a, you know, collection of notebooks and diaries and um, notes. Sort of incidental writing. collections. Yeah. It was a, a massive and intentional project. Which is on the scale of like planning and orchestration that blows my mind. She's, like, how do you come up with that idea? I know she's a genius. <laughs> like, what's that like? <laughs> what is that? What like? is it like? I can't get Jesse on the phone. I'm like, Jesse, what's it like to be a genius? Um, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't fully um, process it until I read uh, Shelley Streeby's article, Radical Reproduction, Octavia E. Butler's Histofuturist Archiving as Speculative Theory. Um, and so this introduces the idea of histofuturism, which was something um, that Octavia E. Butler, uh, it, it was her own, her own system. It, okay. And so I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read from uh, Streeby's paper here, and I'll also include a link to it in the notes, um, because as I will repeat at the end of this. Um, I really think you should read it. It's really, um, it's, it's really fascinating and sort of, um, eye opening and it sort of, um, kind of scratches at the edges of sort of 
like genre and like sort of epistemology. So um, I'm going to uh, pull from Streaming Out. Quote, as I suggest in my recent book, Imagining the Future of Climate Change, in Butler's notebooks of the 1980s, she named her speculative writing, theorizing, and archiving practices histofuturism, which she defines as both an alternative to and merging of the work of historians and futurists. I am fully on board already. Um, in the paragraphs where she coins the term, Butler briefly alludes to the Futurians, quote, a a specific old-time fan group, end quote, and future history, a subgenre of science fiction as she considers the words different variants and meanings. She also criticizes futurists who study the recent past and present in an effort to forecast the future for making people into, quote, puppets, end quote, or leaving, quote, them out entirely, end quote, to vindicate particular systems and champion new technologies as the main drivers of history. Claiming the histofuturist as, quote, her own invention, end quote, Butler imagines this figure in contradistinction to historians and futurists as one who extrapolates from the human and technological past and present by researching, archiving, and then working over research materials to speculate about possible futures that might materialize on their foundations. As well, Butler's research often explores what we might call forms of radical reproduction, as she imagines otherwise knowledge as she imagines otherwise knowledge production, memory, historiography, racial capitalism, ecology, climate change, environmental justice, schooling, and education, while critically documenting the history of the privatizing, tax cutting, public destroying, deregulating Reagan Bush administrations. Hmm. So that, that this is sort of her working on, um, so she, she formed an entire uh, philosophy to inform her speculative fiction. Which again, a level of intellect that I cannot yeah, fathom. And, and so this is something also that I, um, I find staggering um, because, you know, I... I come like, you know, I'm, I'm from a, a community and sort of a, a background of, um, not many people go to college, not people are like educated in the traditional sense. And so I'm like aware of the capacity to like be intelligent and like be knowledgeable right. outside of formal education. Outside of schooling. Yeah. And so I'm always, um, I, I am always drawn to stories of autodidacts and, and people that sort of just, and so a lot of her work was done in public libraries and things because yeah. she doesn't have a, um, it's like she did not have a, like a, an advanced formal education. Now, like she like was educated. I'm not saying that, but like she, she is not a, an historian. Like she did not, like she, she did not pursue uh, like, advanced training in like historiographic mm -hmm. methods or um and like any any kind of this stuff no like instead she, she was free to come up with her own framework because yeah. she wasn't schooled into yeah. rigidity by a exactly. history program yeah. yeah molded by um her her superiors um and Oof. so it's just really um it's just really astounding because you know you you, you read her work and you're like this is brilliant and then like i learn about this entire other category of um sort of 
knowledge production that she adhered to and something that's completely self-designed, self-imposed. And, and it, it just is kind of the heart of inquiry Mm -hmm. is what she does. Um, and, um, and I just cannot, I cannot like impress upon you, dear listener enough, like how, uh, moving it was to see and how like sort of stimulating it was to see her notebooks and to see um, the sort of things that she like wrote in like all caps with exclamation points of like things she wants to get across in her work. And um, it was just a, like there were things that she wrote in those notes and like notes to self and, and sort of um, th- things about wanting to convey emotions that um, were, that are not dissimilar to the sorts of notes that I've written for myself, like in Mm -hmm. my manuscripts and like in my diaries and just like being this like very pale shadow of (laughs) like of her was just like, Oh, I don't know. It was encouraging. Yeah. I can see how that would be the case. Um, yeah. So, so can I, can I ask a a question about this archive? So these genuinely were her writing notes though. Yeah. These are her notebooks, but she intended for them to be seen. So I, I, yeah, like she used them. They were for, okay. They were like, so this, I mean, so it's, it's sort of a dual purpose. Like, I don't know at what point she conceived the idea of making this an archive that would be, sort of compiled as, as a single exhibit sort of. Um, but, but it's not like she wrote them for the purpose of an exhibit. Like she wasn't necessarily creating these notebooks with people looking at it in mind. She was also authoring her, her books and her stories. To me, to me, the primary, um, the primary impetus for doing this was her own, study and working okay. out her own thoughts. Okay. And, and then, also like, so the, the stuff that I saw in the mothership um, exhibit uh-huh. at the Oakland museum, um, it was, it was sort of um, ancillary to the, the wider bit about her. Cause okay. sort of the, as you, as you I think it was in the first room as you enter and there's um, uh, like there, there was, there was stuff around, you know, like Henrietta Lacks was, yeah. was featured. And so like thinking about the uh, um, kind of like black futures, black immortality, like th- those sorts of ideas. And so the work of Octavia Butler was included. A part of that was was seeing this glimpse into her mind. Okay. Um, but there's a sort of, um, there is a like personal intimacy to the notes that it feels very voyeuristic or transgressive to see because these were notes to herself, like sort of like the back of an envelope kind of thing of, of um, like things that she wants to reinforce in her work. And so that the stuff that I saw like in that case um, was mostly just um, uh, like her, her notes of affirmation to herself being like, I am a best-selling author. Like just sort of reminding herself this. Like, of yeah. her like accolades yeah. and, and like her. And, and so that's Some, something that's we should was, all pause and I take know, time to I do know. occasionally. Yeah. And so that's what was pulled in there. Okay. Like her, like just sort of like a glimpse into a brilliant mind. So I didn't know about the archive and like okay. futurism until I found the Streeby article. Okay. Because I was like, 
yeah, like, so I, like, I, I knew that her archive, like her notes were somewhere and I was mm. like, maybe there's more stuff. And then I found out that this, it was an intentional was, project by her. Okay. I want to mention something before you continue. Cause you, yes. you brought up Henrietta Lacks. And so I okay, just want to yes, make sure yes. that our listeners know who that is. So Henrietta Lacks was uh, a black woman who went to be treated for cervical cancer and, um, Without her consent, her cancer cells were taken for medical research purposes and are the source of one of the most important cell lines in medical research. It's called HeLa for Henrietta Lacks. And so the issues of um, the use of, of someone's body, the someone's cells yeah. as, as medical research tool or as like a, as a, as a guinea pig, like as using, Taking it without her consent is um, a big discussion in medical ethics, and it's also reflective of the racial bias inherent in medical practice and medical mm-hmm. studies. Um, so, like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments come to mind, um, which um, listeners you can look into that if you're if you're interested. It is extremely upsetting. Um, but in general, um, the, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks is the book Mm -hmm. that, um, sort of details that whole, um, history. Yeah. And so also, um, Henrietta Lacks, um, did not survive. Yes. No, she, it was, she, she passed away from her cancer um, diagnosis. And, um, and so she, and so this was, uh, this was at John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, there's the, there's another dimension to this. Um, medical institutions have been able to, um, like exploit. Uh, yeah. It, it's exploiting, um, it's exploiting a family's grief. It's exploiting a, a vulnerable person, a, 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 yeah, a woman who had limited access, um, who was, who was given limited access to, um, healthcare and treatment, mm-hmm. and then in her death, have her um, have her body commodified and and profited off of in a way that her um, was explicitly uh, against her wishes. Yeah, and her family um, did not know about this. Did not uh, did not get any um, any any like, say. Yeah, there was no consent, there was no recognition, and so it's it's so much more um, nuanced and horrible than just like they made money off of it and the family didn't see any of it. Which is sort of like this is now uh, yes layers like, of yeah this is now systemic decades, issues yeah like, like generations of scientific research that has been built on the foundation of a, a woman who um, was sick perhaps could have um, seen. Um, old age if she had had access to like early uh, screening and treatment mm-hmm. and um, the received the same level of care. Yeah. And so it's something that is on one hand a really um, just like uh, incredible story of just like, just like the story of the cells themselves that it's a, yeah. a line that like never stops like reproducing like it's it's like an immortal cell line and so it's something that's very unique and yeah, medically fascinating yeah but 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 the the context from which it's been plucked yeah and the cost like the the human yeah. cost is is and, 
Yeah. And it's something that is, um, as far as the history of medical research in the United States, it's something that is, um, unfortunately and, and painfully, um, just another, another movement in the same piece of, of, of like a symphony of bad. Well, of just, um, experimenting upon exploiting and capitalizing off of the, um, the, the illnesses and suffering and like physical bodies of, um, but black people, people of color, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, racialized minorities, mm-hmm. and and so it's something that is, and so it's it that its inclusion in this mothership exhibit is to, um, to sort of begin thinking about, um, sort of the the limits, like the like of just sort of 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 science and and the the idea of. Um, like uh, themes of perhaps like black people will save us all as sort of lots of like refrains on the, the internet about, you know, like listening to like, you know, black women tried to tell you like listening to black women, those sorts of things of um, the, the role of the like black diaspora and like black Americans as, um, I'd like the the role in the future and creating mm-hmm. futures and imagining yeah. futures and um and so yeah and so we talked way about to bring it Afro- around that was yeah, good we we talked about Afrofuturism um, yeah episode, episode hundred the future yeah. I had mentioned if you go back and listen to that episode I mentioned that there was a um there was a talk that had been given but the recording wasn't available this was like two years ago that recording is available now hey. I think I'll pull it um and put it in the show notes for this so you don't have to go find it on your own. You don't have to um, wade through Google. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's one more excerpt that I want to read from um, Streeby's article that um, illustrates the medium of her notebooks really well, um, as well as their purpose. So this might help you, Anna, as you. <laughs> I would like help. Yeah. Uh, so quote, the connections between Butler's research and speculative theory are also visible in another set of notes from this era. So this is in the 80s. Yep. Um, in notes on writing, she compiled in a three ring binder around 1980, just before she conceived of the histofuturist. She taped two blank index cards on the top of the page. The left one distills important insights about research, while the one on the right instills, insists on the importance of dramatizing action and struggle. On the top left, she extracted key points from five pages of a 1979 issue of The Writer, featuring science fiction author Ben Bova. Butler emphasized the idea that, quote, research is vital to realism, end quote, by writing it writing in red, bright red ink and giving this card a special place at the top. She also listed three important forms of research that were crucial to her own archiving, constellating, annotating and speculative fiction writing. The first was extrapolation defined by the phrase. If this goes on (laughs) and a basic tool in the toolkit of the science fiction writer. The second was speculation, the method of asking what if based on research material, Butler explained the third method projection in the following way. 
quote, take an incident from history and project it into the future. Pretty self-explanatory. All three of these methods fundamentally depend on research. And again and again, throughout Butler's papers, the keyword research pops up in connection to her deepest aims and ambitions as a thinker and writer. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. So at the end here... I wanted to, so I wanted to bring it back all the way around. Time for a list. Um, and, uh, and, and take us back to like where we started this conversation. Yeah. Uh, with Pat. Pat's not here. He's not no. behind the, like baffling <laughs> in your living room. I don't think he would fit. He's a very muscular guy. He's a large man. Uh, but yeah, so I wanted to, to talk about fictional um, anthropology. Yeah. And anthropologists that show up in science fiction. Uh, properties. And so this is a big old roundup of appearances of anthropology and science fiction from the geek anthropologist, which in, in hindsight was the first place I should have looked. Hey, <laughs> not the place that I ended up. Well, you know, you, um, kinda, you backed into it. Yeah. And so this idea of anthropology and outer space. Yeah. Uh, and so, not even, I mean, not even in outer space, sometimes in just like alternate worlds or, oh, so I'll maybe just go through the ones that I like the, from things I've watched yeah, just because like, I can't I mean, speak to the other ones, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could. Uh, no, this I'm not going to do this that. This is the medium for talking about things you don't know anything about. <laughs> it doesn't have to be, though. <laughs> That's the thing. That's our whole thing. Is that it doesn't have to be that. <laughs> Come on. Okay. Go. Yeah. So the first one is one that I am aware of. Dr. Daniel Jackson, archaeologist and linguist. From Stargate SG One, I take like umbrage with that um, that they went with Stargate SG One and not Stargate, like the movie. Eh. I mean, he's a, he's the char- he's a character in that. Yeah, he's like one of the like the protagonists, the OGs. Yeah, but it's but it predates it and is arguably better. And um, no. I just like James, I like, James Spader. No, I like. <laughs> I like Jack O'Neill, uh, played by MacGyver, whose name I forget. What? The the actor who played MacGyver is the main guy in Stargate SG-1. Oh, okay. He would O'Neal. not play Dana, because Dana Jackson no, was played by no, some, no. like, mid-aughts hottie, right? Yeah. Who, like, like, I don't think generic did, mid-aughts hottie. Yeah, I don't think he did anything A man with again. a square jaw and glasses. Square jaw, glasses, and, like, great bangs. Yeah. Great bangs. Um, okay. so yeah, yeah, and he, you know, in Stargate is problematic for tons and tons of reasons. Uh, but it's a fun, dumb show and it's about space aliens. And it's a fun, dumb movie too with Kurt Russell. Great. Let's watch that instead of Godfather. No. <laughs> um, yeah, but, um, he, Daniel Jackson kind of fills the role of interlocutor between the Stargate team and like an alien culture. He's like, ah, I have studied 
these writings and these artifacts. And, you know, it's, it's, that is a role that the anthropologist slash archaeologist often plays is yeah. like cultural translator, um, or just kind of like a lazy device for yeah. like, we need someone to explain yeah, stuff. Yeah. They're, they're like an exposition robot. Yeah. <laughs> robot. <laughs> Beep boop. Um, Jean-Luc Picard is, is an archaeology enthusiast. <laughs> Yeah, I, He's I just, just a man of culture. Yeah, but also, uh, so I just value that he likes archaeology. I I just think that's charming. Like it's problematic in many of the same ways. <laughs> but come on, it's Picard. But the but so a lot of there are a lot of folks that that come up in um, the Star Trek um, universe, mm-hmm. and that is I think um, a um, it it lends itself to. Um, to like scrutiny and it's, it's used as a, Oh, as commentary. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And which is something that has been a through line of, of this series is science fiction as commentary as like social, a way to kind of explore elements of society. So moving on to (laughs) Temperance Brennan. (sighs) Forensic anthropologist and Poorly written person with bad. So another with with more mid aughts hotties. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like (laughs) I really, I watched Bones when it when it came out, and I was like, "This is cool because they're doing science in a." And like at the time, I was like, "Cool, it's much more realistic than other shows." But like going back, oofa doofa, not, and also it's it has like the like heinous politics of oh, of, of copaganda like, yes. yeah <laughs> yes yeah it's just like um, the cops yeah. are here to protect you and they are powerful they will yes. always solve the crime and they know who's wrong so like you, you might as well just confess yeah because they figured it out um yeah so that's all and i remember um <sighs> i i remember not knowing a diddly darn thing about bones um, uh, about capital b bones or the human I was, skeleton I was aware of like Okay. Material. Yes. Okay. Um, but it mm-hmm. was, it was while I was at Bryn Mawr and, uh-huh. um, I mean, yes, our, <laughs> the uh, timing checks out. <laughs> and so our friends and we had some friends in anthro and archaeology uh-huh. um, who were Boone's fans. And, um, so our friend Bowie, um, was, oh my God. Like, I was, I, I really, I wanted to shout out Bowie. I was going to do it later. Okay. But. Well, we still can shout out Bowie. Yeah. Um, but, so it was in Bowie's room that there was like the, the collections of like the, yes, that's the right. TV she had collections. box sets. Yeah. And, and so, um, and she was like, yeah, I'm like into like forensic anthropology. And so she she was in, I'm doing crystal method. Yeah. We're going to get like copyright slammed. I doubt it. Fair use. But yeah, so she was in like anthro and archaeology, uh-huh. and she took the. I remember her talking about the like the forensic anthropology class and how like it was just like a huge bummer because that's yeah, that's well, because it is yeah, because the, yeah, these people to, have like, died. Learn about genocides and stuff, yep. and like to be able to like yep. identify somebody who got genocided like by their bones, and yep. And so that's, and that's osteology. So like having this, her her talk about this experience as compared to like bones, I was just like, 
Uh, but but now Bowie. Well, um, oh boy, she took she took that anthropology and archaeology and and transformed so, them. So this is uh, Bowie, who is a, a screenwriter now. Yeah, and with screenwriting partner Erica. Yes, um, they are responsible <laughs> in large part for the anthropologist Michael Burnham, who is the protagonist of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. So I I hope they. I, Major shouts out to Bowie and Erica. You knew Erica, yeah. I did it. I know, but so that's they. I, I know they're okay. a duo. I know that, but like, but I'm. But shouts out. I'm talking about my experience, <laughs> <laughs> and Erica wasn't a part of it. Okay, white uh, lady no, protagonist. Erica, <laughs> no, um, Erica's also great. The like three times that I met her. Yeah. No, and um, small school. She was around. Yeah, yeah. No, I just uh, they're tremendous. So, I just. They're so cool. <laughs> so our cool friends. Yeah. Uh, cool friends who really redeemed themselves after introducing me to uh, an uncool show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, I know this has been done, but I, I do think we should pick an episode of like early season of Bones and and talk about it and like kind of break down. Um, uh, Christina Kilgrove mm-hmm. did that. Oh, okay. Well. I'm not saying that I don't want to do it. Also, I don't want to do it. But Christina Kilgrip did a really great job well, okay. of like revisiting Bones and like Let's, like doing like a roundup of like egregious like misunderstandings, bone, bone sins. Yeah, of, um, but yeah, I'll I'll find that. Yeah, put that on the show notes, and then we don't have to do the me. thing. Okay, <laughs> I will put it on. I will. But, uh, yeah. So she so she did that, and so like, um, there's tons of. Uh, tons of Star Trek here. Yeah. Uh, but I am, I do, I'm not familiar with this particular episode, but I'm going to read this because this is a very funny collection of words. Twilight Zone episode, Mr. Dingle, the strong. A Venusian and a two-headed Martian walk into a bar and give Burgess Meredith the strength of 500 men as an anthropological experiment. So now I'm, I'm going to have to watch that. Oh, Although I think Twilight Zone will just give me anxiety. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, Jeff Vandermeer shows up. Yeah, Your boy. In the book Annihilation. Yeah, I haven't read it. Um, uh, I know. Um, Let me read my dumb swords books. It's just, oh. So Jeff Vandermeer is another writer that I'm just like, go! Oh! <laughs> it just like, makes me so. <laughs> Why do you keep reading these books if they make you mad? They're good. They're so good. <laughs> and I just, like, I just wish that I could turn off my, like, um, Self-critical brain? Low low self-esteem yeah. writer brain to just like enjoy somebody's words. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, um, so, yeah. The, Jeff Vandermeer. In the X-Mans, um, yes. Xavier, Professor X has... <laughs> like Javier. Yes. Javier. <laughs> good at this. Professor <laughs> Javier. No. Professor Xavier has a PhD in anthropology and apparently, news to me, one great enemy of the X-Men, Bolivar Trask, is a prominent anthropologist. Okay. People really do not know what academics are called. No, no. Also, anyone. No I, one I is know. called Bolivar Trask. <laughs> Someone's going to write yeah, us. Like, my name is. <laughs> her name. <laughs> my, my grandpa. Um, and and so. Oh, why is to Lara Croft is. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's a so great movie. Here but. we can talk about. Let's talk about a rim experience somewhere. Everybody loves when we do that. Um, so Betty Draper from Mad Men. Uh, so Betty Draper went to Bryn Mawr. Of course she did. Um, which is just... Would like, have thought her more of a Wellesley gal. But. Well, having spent quite a bit of time with the Alumni Association, uh, we have our fair share of Betty Drapers in the ranks. 
uh, yep. spinning every day. Uh, yep. <laughs> but she studied anthro. And so the thought of like a Betty Draper, like mid-century monster and also product of sure. justices. Sure. Um, studying anthro at Bryn Mawr is just like, I don't know, just one of the whitest thoughts I've had in a while. It's like <laughs> whitest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anthropology, the store. I've read that one. <laughs> um, I don't care for it. What? I yeah, it's object. Not, it's not, it's not, not for you. No. Yeah. No, I, I'm not talking about aesthetically either. I just it's like, not for you. Alrighty. <laughs> um, I have seen Archer. Not, not for me. Well, they recently started making clothes for people with larger bodies. Oh, uh, I mean, that's great. They're expensive. Yeah. They're and overpriced. Boring, so. And also oh like they sell like doorknob like uh cabinet knobs for like 60 yeah like why (sighs) this is not the podcast for this i have seen archer um and (laughs) noah is a a grad student (laughs) an anthropology grad student is just the most beta of males um but yeah that's a that's an element that comes up he's doing research uh, on on some, uh, like a jungle culture and is yeah, captured by pirates. Yeah, and it's a whole thing. He's like he's he's sort of like a, the like Michael Rockefeller kind of. Yeah, person, yeah, yeah. Of like going to like some some uh, remote some like Pacific tribe to study them. Yeah, and, to like, be among them. Yeah, and then it goes poorly. Um, yeah, but like Archer, like I kind of I'm okay with that because Archer is so like self lampooning and self-aware like it traffics in in tropes and by like employing them it's sort of calling them out yeah and and Um, that's kind of you know in the same framework as um sci-fi as social commentary like it's it's raunchy comedy as social commentary um uh and of course indiana jones we've done a whole episode about our takes on all of the indiana's joan and i've yeah. Yep. And, and also I thought about I yesterday. Yes, I think yesterday we were eating dinner and just having a Wanna tell everybody what we had for dinner? We were having a, a lovely panzanella and I was just having a normal one, a completely normal one. And then I remembered <laughs> And then the intrusive thought I had the intrusive thought of like Indiana Jones got me tooed. And like cause I think about yeah. this all the time as he should have i think well marion uh, no, ravenwood he, he, was a child no 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 i'm talking about i'm talking about huh? the notes like the transcripts of the conversation oh among of, of spielberg yes or lawrence kasdan and somebody else as discussed on um in research of yes it was discussed on in research they, they talked about this but the the fact so here i'm gonna ruin this is for your own good everyone i'm going to ruin uh, Indiana Jones for you in Raiders of the Lost Ark um, in the the iconic scene of um, him like being in the classroom being the natty professor um, and mm. he, he turns and there's a student who like slow blinks and, and her, says love you her eyelids say love you um, so that's something that he's like oh oh Oh, oh, okay. I don't know what to do with this. I'm just a bumbling professor. Um, yeah, in in the cut of the movie that in the cut of the movie that we see. came out. But then Anna later when 
the museum guy, Marcus. <laughs> Marcus. When um, Marcus shows up. Brody. The, Marcus Brody mm. shows up at the house. <laughs> like, so Indy comes out and he's wearing like a, a blue, is it the blue bathrobe? Or, Some kind of fluffy robe. Yeah. he's. I he picture cuts, it white, but I, I don't that know. can't Maybe be right. Maybe I'm thinking of, um, of James Bond. Doesn't matter. Like. Sure doesn't. Wit- eyewitnesses. Bathrobe. Bad test, bad testimony. So he comes out and he's like putting his bathrobe on. In what, the transcripts. So what happened, what happened in the story is that he was hooking up with that student. And I shouldn't say hooking up because that implies more empowered consent than there was. No, he, yes. So he. Yep. And I have. I know for, that now. For very like. It's not that I respected Indiana Jones. Very, for very like individual and personal reasons. And like particularly upset by that. Um, and like that sort of exploitation of, of power over students that I'm just like, yeah, Indiana Jones is a, is, a sex crime. Indiana Jones <laughs> is indeed the prototypical archaeology professor. It's <laughs> garbage. So that's, um, so that's, so that, that for you, but I have one more thing that I want to tell you about, Anna. Okay. And that is from a different star property. Star Wars. Um, a Star Wars. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, Wars. anthropologists study pew, pew. Hoi anthropoi. So they study nee. people, um, like, like hu- human people. Yep. But what about, but what happens when your universe is much like when your world is much larger and you have people who aren't anthropoi? I know the answer to this. Would you like the answer? No, oh. because this is a rhetorical device. <laughs> Mm. What's the answer, Anna? I'll let you. You have scholars who study sentient life, mm-hmm. and they are called sentientologists. Um, and and so sentientology <laughs> is a is a it's a fragrance store. <laughs> is a keyword that is hard to search in Google because it'll be like, did you mean Scientology? Indeed, absolutely I did not. Um, and so sentientologists. So that I'm reading now from Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> That that was Wookie for citation needed. A joke I came up with last at, night at, at dinner. dinner. Last night. So this is these were like our two um, two parallel but not intersecting planes that we were on. Yeah, I mean this is generally our our process about like fictional sexual assaults. And Anna was thinking about <laughs> <Wookiees>. <laughs> Um Yeah. So. Um, a sentientologist, um, also referred to as a sapientologist or anthropologist, um, was a scientist who studied the biology, culture, and history of the galaxy's wide variety of sentient races and species. Um, the University of Sanbra's Sentient Studies Department was one of the main centers for the study of sentientology. Scholars at the universe, University of Coruscant were influential in the field. Under the New Republic, a multi-species committee of scholars at the University of Coruscant were responsible for classifying species as sentient, semi-sentient, or non-sentient. Can't see how that would be problematic. Well, that sounds <laughs> like Columbia in the University of Columbia in like the 20s. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, we've got some um, prominent sentientologists of the imperial era. Um, you may be familiar with the work of Obo Ren, nope. an imperial functionary who wrote two editions of the Catalog of Intelligent this Life in the Galaxy. This is not a Star Wars um, podcast. It was it was um, 
he 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 did that with funding from Darth Vader. Um, huh. Ditwar Logos. Nope. Um, a renowned, renowned scholar who Obo Rin enhanced his reputation by claiming to have worked with, um, though these claims were suspect. So Ditwar Logos canceled. Yeah, but also again, Ditwar Logos is over party. Yep. Uh, again, commentary because these are all things that happened in anthropology. Yeah. Um, and Tim, 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 Illis. How many Tims are there? Tim with an E. Tim. Tim. T E M. So Tim Illis and Timothy. Yep. Era professor at the University of Sambra who wrote the University of Sambra Guide to Intelligent Life. And then there was senior anthropologist Mamun Hul, an independent Shiito researcher who was the main contributor to the Essential Guide to Alien Species. Great. Um. So, so, yeah. So, okay. So, Star Wars, The Old Republic. That's what I was trying to tell you where I was. I was like, yeah, Old Republic. And you're like, whatever. I don't care for Star Wars. Oh. And I know that that is a take that may get me canceled. I have no problem with Star Wars. It's just not my right, choice of viewing. I mean, I'm like, <laughs> you, you can't. I'm the engineer. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> I'm the engineer now. And have been for the past four um, years. Andy. That was, I think, I think that was a good way to to wrap everything yeah. up. We brought it full circle. And so, so the main, I mean, the main points are that science fiction, speculative fiction is a way that we can explore issues, problems, possibilities, futures within our world, but without writing about our world. And so it's sort of a lower stakes way of exploring these things it's a way to kind of um well it's a way to speculate and Mm so um yeah and i i really appreciate it as a medium and and i i like thinking about it now thinking about even fantasy as a way to because i I tend to be more on the Mm -hmm. the fantasy side of, of reading and consuming media but um thinking about that as you know, what is the author also trying to say besides sword, See, sword, sword, fighty, fight, fight? This is why I can't enjoy lots of things. Yeah. Um, because Cause you I, think too hard. Yes. <laughs> gotcha. I mean. That's a really, that's a concise way to put it. It's a joint problem that we have about but, various but it things. Is something, like, it is something that ha- that impacts my, um, my enjoyment of, of your consumption. Because, yeah. Because like. Which isn't a commentary on no. the thing that you're consuming. It's just, that's how your brain works. Well, yeah. And sometimes it's also a commentary on the thing I'm okay. consuming. Okay. Well, because, because not always. Like, it's, um, because people who create things, so uh, writers, screenwriters, directors, artists, like um, this is not, like they are not a deity creating a world and it just is. Like they are creating things through a lens yeah, and, through, and you get to see that lens and through, in, in and through material circumstance, like their material conditions. Yeah. And so every, everything that is created can be seen at, like can be used as a screen and like as a, as an entry point to a, a narrative that is either being upheld, challenged or, uh, pushed. altered. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and so it's something that I, um, it's good to think about. It's. I think it's great to think about. I yep. don't want to stop thinking about it. No, I mean, maybe, um, maybe I wish that it wouldn't just like pop into your head when you're trying to enjoy a, a nice, nice panzanella. a nice panzanella, but <laughs> uh, made with love. Yeah, mm. but um, and it also has saved me from hours of 
boring small talk with coworkers who want to talk to me about Game of Thrones. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, but, um, yeah. So thank you so much, Alan. Thanks, for, Alan. Um, for prompting us. This was with this. a like, food for thought, a banquet, a banquet for thought. Mm. I'm going to write about it for 17 pages. Yep. Fantasy slam. <laughs> Look, descriptions of feasts are great. Shut up. <laughs> okay, Anna and I are going to go fight now. Um, <laughs> but Author of the Redwall series, Brian Jakes, you're on blast. I mean, he's not. He's dead, but... He could be on blast. Yeah. We don't know what was in his heart. Uh, <laughs> those books are great. Um, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We did warn you that this was going to really devolve at the end, and I think we've uh, kept that promise. I think we held up our end of the Yeah, and so... We will be back in your ears yeah. next week. Yeah. We're back. We're back. Ish. So far. We're back, but we're fighting. So. I mean, <laughs> until about lunchtime when I can I will come bribe Amber <laughs> with a sandwich. <laughs> we're like, oh, sandwich, turkey. <laughs> um, so you can find us at thedirtpod.com where we've got all of our back episodes. And you can also find us and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also also find us on social media. On Facebook, we are The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And we've been posting some fun stuff lately. So go check it out. Go check it out. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. And thank thanks, you. Alan. Thank, thank you, you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Uh, hey, just a note. If you want to sponsor an episode yeah. on a topic of oh, your yeah. choice, <laughs> you can go to thedirtpod.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page. There is a small square icon that says sponsor an episode. And you can click on that and it'll tell you how to do it. Yeah. And we, like, we're not going to give you three episodes worth. Um, this, so, this Al- so A, Alan gave generously. Yes. And B... We didn't answer any of Alan's questions in the first one. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it was... But it was really fun. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you can sponsor an episode, and while we do reserve the right to kind of tweak or politely refuse the episode, if it doesn't kind of go with the uh, general platform... I think this it, is the first time that we've done anything like that, and we didn't even refuse. We're just like, we're going to do this too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, as long as it's, you know, not problematic in some way we will talk about it and research it not in that order and we appreciate all of the support whether it's reviews on podcast platforms or support at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast where you get bonus episodes sure do sure do um we appreciate it all we appreciate those of you who just listen and like the show and we love you goodbye goodbye This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.